Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. TJ Browning, welcome back to the show. You are the public safety chair for the Laurelhurst Neighborhood Association. You've come on before, of course, to talk to us about what the neighborhood of Laurelhurst is going through. I appreciated that. You are back on to talk about policing and the state of police in Portland, police accountability, whatever else you want to talk about. Welcome. How are you this morning? Oh, I, I'm still reeling from testifying yesterday for the disabled people. That was a trip. On a completely different note, hopefully he had his votes lined up before any of this happened. So I'm counting on Gonzalez, Maps, and Wheeler. Rubio is just a wish wash, and who knows which way Ryan will go. But right. hopefully next week's vote will go well. Yeah. Hey, uh, Hawthorne Boulevard, every Memorial Day, puts the flags. I mean, I don't even know how many uh, up and down from about maybe... Cesar Chavez down to, I don't know, they used to go just about to the Hawthorne Bridge. Hmm. And, you know, the, uh, the uh, Hawthorne Business Association, but they get the Boy Scouts. A bunch of volunteers show up at like 6 in the morning, and they line that entire boulevard on both sides of the streets with I don't even know how many American flags. And every one of them were destroyed. Oh, that's terrible. Every flag and every pole. And I think he said before noon. I, you know, honestly, Kirsten, I'm an old lady, and I will admit to being a hippie and an anti-Vietnam demonstrator, but people were doing the honorable thing by signing up to defend our country. And even in my heyday, peace, love, and baby butts, you know, yeah, I recognize that, that those people were doing an honorable thing and needed to be recognized. So I do not understand who or why or what sort of statement or what they think they're doing by destroying. And I didn't see any media coverage on it. But shame on them. Shame on them. Very sad to me. So I'm just telling everybody I know, since I still haven't seen anything. I don't know. I don't, I can't believe there weren't witnesses, you know. Anyway, so I'm just telling everybody. That was my agenda today. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure there were witnesses. (laughs) Yeah, but the problem is people are just afraid You know, they're afraid. I can't tell you how many times I get a call about, um, you know, somebody's pitched a tent in their parking strip and what do I do? Well, have you gone up and asked them to move? Oh, no. You know, 
you, you don't have to be confrontation. You confrontational. Just let them know you like them to move. You don't, but and, I, I have to say, there's there's some evidence base to that reaction, given what we know happened. Alleged, well, we know happened to that poor man Donald, who had his face, who, who was beaten up, right? And his, yeah. there was an elderly guy, his companion, who wasn't killed but sent to the ICU. And then we had the guy whose face was chewed off on the Max platform. And then we had, uh, um, we've got a third of our homicides being committed by homeless people or with homeless people as perpetrators. That makes us an outlier in the entire United States. These people are armed, they have guns, and they're on these unpredictable drugs. And it's a deadly combination. I totally get why people don't want to talk to them. I mean, you don't want okay. to set them well, off. Okay, well, then, Kirsten, you just, when when they have the big party, <laughs> after I made my, made that, made my uh, fate, um, I want you to get up there and say, I told you so, TJ. <laughs> no, that will not happen. That will never happen. You will never, you will never come to an end. You will bathe in a, in a fountain of youth or get bitten by a vamp, vampire or something and continue this. All right. Um, well, let's so where talk do you about, wanna... yeah, let's talk about police accountability. I mean, why don't we talk about your background? Because a lot of people don't know it. And I did a little summary of it before your last episode, but we haven't heard it from you. And I think it would be powerful coming from you to talk about how long you've been doing police accountability work. All right. Well, give me the signal when I, when I've gone on too long, because I will tell you right now, on <laughs> um, boy, this must be a theme today on my deathbed. If I get asked the moment in my life that was most consequential for me, I suspect a lot of people would say the birth of their child or getting married or, you know what, Mine is going to be that night in January of 1992 when 12-year-old Nathan Thomas was taken hostage in his home and, and killed. And it set off such a chain of reaction in my life that continues to this day, you know, some 30-odd years later. So... I, I blame pregnancy hormones initially for a lot of it. I was pregnant at the time, and I was had been told I couldn't have children. I was, um, yeah, pretty darn excited about the birth of this child coming up. And I don't, it must have been about 3 o'clock in the morning when my phone started ringing. And at the time, I was the editor for my neighborhood newsletter. And I had, in every issue of the newsletter, I had, I called it the editor's page, the inside cover there. And I kept writing what would, could be accurately characterized as the most schmaltzy stuff you'll ever read. I, I wanted a neighborhood. I wanted a community. I wanted to live someplace like my childhood where all the neighbors knew each other. And we sat out on the porch and had coffee or they, 
old ladies ratted me out before I got home if I picked their flowers. You know, we all knew each other. We all looked out at each other, and it was a real community. And I had just moved into the neighborhood, and I wanted that here. So I'd write a column about, hey, get to know your neighbors. Otherwise, we're not a neighborhood. We're just rows of houses. And, I mean, every single issue had something community-building And I had thought nobody was paying attention and nobody was reading it because I'd never gotten any response until that night. And the phone calls were terribly confusing at first. What happened? I didn't know what they were talking about. Um, We need to do something. Uh, Can can we go over and uh, fix the house? Can we... I had no idea for probably about 15 minutes and about 10 phone calls. And finally, I uh, got up and went and turned on the television. I think it was about 5 in the morning by now. Mm. And and saw the news. <clears throat> I, somebody had, a uh, house had been attempted break-in. She called the police. The police arrived. They did in those days and um, tracked this burglar to a basement window of a, a neighbor's house. And the burglar was inside the house. So they had gone up to, the police had gone up to the front door and knocked on the door, and the father answered the door. And bear in mind, this is like 3.30 in the morning. They asked how many people were in the house, my wife and my two sons, get them all out of the house, somebody's in your home, and we, we need you out of here. So the dad goes over to the seven-year-old son's room, and the mom goes over to the 12-year-old son's room to get the boys up. Uh, Mom can't get a response out of Nathan, so she goes in the room, the 12-year-old's room, and throws back the covers, and here is somebody in bed with him with a knife. Uh, The police tell the parents and the seven-year-old to back into the seven-year-old's room, bolt the door, and they'll take care of it. The perpetrator, his name was Brian Pranch, gets, Brian gets up with Nathan in front of him and goes out into the hall. And the house is built, the kind of house where there's a, up from the landing, there's a, up from the entryway, there's a path staircase and then there's a landing with a window box and a window and then it turns and goes back upstairs and he was standing at the top there with Nathan in front of him like a shield officers were walking around on the outside of the house and saw him standing there with Nathan in front of him assumed they had a clear shot took their Glock service revolvers and fired through a double pane window, killing Nathan and Brian. My God. This all took place in a matter of minutes. Yeah. You know, at the time, see, I'm getting upset already. At the time I was pregnant. I had worked hard to get a house in a good neighborhood and, you know, I, I was, was going to keep my child safe. And, you know, I had all these, I guess most women do, the vision of 
what this was going to be like to be a mother and have a child. Mm-hmm. And this event absolutely shattered that. I was, by six o'clock in the morning, I was wondering what the heck I was doing bringing a child into a world that can't even be safe in their own home, in their own bed with both their parents there. And is dead at the hands of the Portland Police Bureau. By midnight that night, at some point, I had the common sense to get out a legal pad, notepad, and start taking down names and numbers. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I had never done public speaking. I had never done uh, grassroots organizing. had never done anything. But I started taking down the names of all these people who were reaching out and wanting to help that family. And I know this sounds bizarre, but by midnight that night, I was sitting on the couch humming. And I get asked, what's going on? Because I was a mess in the morning. I was sobbing. I was just, and I held up this pad with sheets of names. And I said, the world's a good place. I mean, look at all these good people. There are so many more good people in the world than bad people. And things are going to be okay. You know, Kirsten, I think that's when the good needs to get louder was born. There were so many good people. And the next thing that started happening to me is checks started coming in. I started receiving all kinds of checks. People wanted to do something. Well, I didn't know what to do with these checks. Uh, fortunately, my husband is a attorney, and he has for his entire uh, career set up nonprofits pro bono. I mean, you know, if they're good nonprofits and they have good intents, well, then he sets them up for them. And so that was the start of the Nathan McMurray Thomas Fund, Inc. We All the checks went into there, and I think there were six of us from the neighborhood who formed this nonprofit. One of the people who happened to call me was a, a neighbor offering help was a grief counselor. And she was just determined that we do something for the children of the neighborhood. She told me that funerals in the United States are basically um, designed for adults and that the children were, were going to be traumatized. You know, this is one of their friends asleep in their home and dead at the hands of the police. Something needed proactively to be done to deal with them and their grief. So one week after Nathan's death, uh, I organized a candlelight vigil in, in the park, in Laurelhurst Park. I didn't know what I was doing, Kirsten. Fortunately, like I said, there are a lot of good people out there. Somebody had the programs printed up. Uh, the sound system was donated. My best friend since first grade sang Amazing Grace and acapella and hired a bagpipe player. All the candles were donated by Juan Young, the gentleman that used to own the keynote stores. I mean, everything just kind of came together. 
And um, I think that was the start of my grassroots organizing. Part of that story that I've never said publicly, Kirsten, I... Wait, I need to back up just a second. The next morning after Nathan's death, his parents, Martha McMurray and Dr. Thomas, issued a statement. Drugs didn't kill our son. Alcohol didn't kill our son. The Portland Police Bureau did not kill our son. Root causes that we refuse to address as a society killed our son. I don't think I could have been that magnanimous. Yeah. If I was in that situation, Brian French was um, the perpetrator, was a textbook of what's wrong, where we failed people, you know, in and out of foster homes. He had drugs and alcohol in his system when he broke into the house. Um, and he was a young life that we basically threw away as a society. We didn't, we didn't help him in a, in a bad childhood. And that's what Martha and Greg, the, the parents were referencing. And that became the mission statement for the Nathan Thomas Fund, Inc., we just took their quote. Well, when that happened that morning, I knew, I just knew that nobody gets ready and goes to work with the goal of killing a 12-year-old child. I just knew that this event, I don't know how, but I just knew this was traumatic for the police bureau too. I didn't know why it happened. I didn't know where to place blame, but I just knew the Bureau was suffering and reeling. And that this, this was a trauma for them too. And they needed to be healed. The community needed to be healed. The family needed to be healed. Something needed, something needed to happen. So, I've never said this before to anybody. Um, I called the commander at the precinct. The precinct at that time was up on 47th and Burnside. He took my call immediately. I was surprised. I told him we were organizing candlelight vigil, and I wanted them to come. I wanted the bureau to it. I was inviting the bureau to attend. I felt that they needed healing, too. He turned down my offer. He thanked me for inviting them, but he didn't think it would be appropriate for them to show up. But he said, what can we do to help? TJ, this is the right thing to do. We want this to happen. What can we do to help? And I said, I, 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 had told, I told them everything that was happening. I was like, every... I didn't even know what we were doing. I didn't even have a program and, you know, it was all just coming together. But I thanked him for the offer and he said, who's paying for the sound system? And I had those checks I was talking about. And he said, no, no, no. Do not tell anybody. This is the first time I've told publicly said this. 
the Parkland Police Bureau will donate that sound system. Wow. And they did. The other thing that's not known, there's been, um, we had, I don't know, at least 500 people show up. I mean, I could not believe how many people showed up. And it was an amazing evening. But I was facing a crowd of like maybe 500 people as I was hosting, and they were facing in my direction. And as I was standing there looking at the crowd, trying to, figure out what I was doing from the back of the crowd, from the back of the park comes the mounted patrol. We had a mounted patrol in those days. And there were, I don't know how many horses, maybe five horses and officers. They came in the back. Nobody saw them but me and one of the horses had an empty saddle with the boot upside down in the stirrup. And that is a traditional sign of respect. And I just hurt for them too. So we went on, the Nathan Thomas went on, we put in a soccer field for Nathan in the park annex, but, you know, Oregon National Guard graded it, the people, everything was donated, it was all volunteer, the money kept coming in, then we did a playground, uh, then we did something in the courtyard for the school he attended, the family uh, set up a soccer tournament because um, Nathan was a soccer player and the whole time this is going on, I'm we're just trying to honor the family's wishes and not have, we didn't have an intention of starting a nonprofit. Um, I mean, we really didn't know what we were doing. We just kept going. The Nathan, the Thomas family, his parents filed the petition or filed the legal paperwork to sue the city, uh, but they had no intention of suing. They went to the city and said, we will not sue if you bring in an independent investigator to go through everything that happened that night to ensure it never happens again. These are wonderful people. I didn't know him at the time. I'm honored I do now. And the city agreed. It took about maybe a year and a half for the report to come out. I think it's about 170 pages. I read it that day. It came out. And basically it said nobody did anything wrong. And when I read that report, I thought, how can that be that a 12-year-old child is dead and nobody did anything wrong? And at that moment, I made the decision 
that I still have to this day that policies, procedures, and training let the Bureau down that night. The fact that the end result of that evening violated nothing told me there was some big problem there with policy procedures and training. And I went to the Thomas family and I said, I'm going to get involved in police reform. I didn't know what it meant then, what, what it was going to, what form it was going to take. And so, and they said, no, they weren't interested. And so I said, okay, I mean, I'm not, stepping on their grief. I'm, I'm honoring their wishes. So that's when I resigned from the Nathan Thomas board. And, um, at that point we, a police officer stepped forward. He wanted to join the board. And I set out on my own to find out, (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking, how this was going to get fixed, how, how the, how this was going to get fixed. So I started going through a massive education process. Um, I know I've told you before, I'm not the brightest bulb in the sign. I recognize that. And so I compensate by over-preparing. I read everything I could read. Um, I went to all the community policing events. I researched community policing. Um, I looked at, this was a bit later, I... Um, just started reading up on use of deadly force. What's the standard? The FBI sets the standard. Um, traveling around the country, um, talking to different people. Um, and I settled on a civilian review board. Having civilians have a voice in the bureau. Um, so you came up with that. Well, it's out it was out there. Right, but for Portland. You came but for up with Portland. Well, they had something called PIAC. And I don't remember what those words, those initials stood for. And they said it was a window into the police bureau. Well, Kirsten, a window to me indicated you were on the outside looking in and you didn't have a voice. And you couldn't take action, but you got to see how everything worked. That wasn't adequate enough. We had a 12-year-old child killed. Obviously, that wasn't work working. So I started reading everything. And um, when I thought, when I settled upon a civilian review board, I started looking at there's there were a bunch of different models. I went down to San Diego and talked to Eileen Luna. She was the executive director in San Diego of their civilian review board. And they were the only ones in the country with subpoena power. And I, she was very gracious. I spent a morning with her. Like what, what do you need to have a good civilian review board? And got her opinion. I had read a story, an article, a couple articles by a guy named Warner Pedersen. He taught at Northwestern, but he was a, he worked for the DOJ. I think he was a consultant. And I flew out there, and he was very generous with his time. And his job with the DOJ was the Department of Justice, was um, when a, the relationships 
were broken so badly between a community and a police bureau that they couldn't function any longer. He flew in to rebuild that relationship. I'm totally, this guy is so smart and had such better words than I'm using. But basically that was his job, to fly in and try to fix the relationship between the community and the police they serve, or that serves them. And boy, that was Freudian. And he told me that the Civilian Review Board was the best tool that he had that was most effective in doing that. He didn't, I asked him about like, you know, does it bring down use of force? Does it change behavior? You know, all the standard questions that I was looking for. He said he wasn't sure about any of that, but his experience, it helped the relationship between the community and the police bureau. And I just at that time thought, yep, that's a step in the right direction. So I started figuring out who in the city to talk to, who in the police bureau to talk to, how do I get this civilian review board going? Um, Tom Potter uh, was big, was chief of police during some of this, and he was big on community policing. And I thought that that was also a step in the right direction for the bureau because it you worked in partnership with the community. And so I started uh, looking into that quite heavily. So what this led to, uh, one day uh, Mark Jolin reached out to me. We know him now as the, you know, he was in charge of the Joint Task Force for Homelessness. He's a homeless advocate. But this was before he went to law school and before he got immersed in the homeless, he was working on police accountability. So we started tag teaming, going out and talking to ecumenical council, um, you know, city club, anybody we thought that could help us get a civilian review board going, we were out speaking with them. And eventually we got into a lot of places in city hall. So we're banging on the door to get community, to get a civilian review board. And then the Vera Katz at the time, the mayor of Vera, mayor of Vera Katz, pulled together a task force. She called it a stakeholders committee. And I think there were about 14 of us. And we met weekly for about an hour and a half, and everybody was at the table. It was literally the right and the left. We had uh, the ACLU sitting on my left, across from the attorney for the police union, Will Aitchison, on my right. We had the FBI we had uh, the editor for Street Roots. We had, I mean, we had everybody at that table. We spent a, a lot of time coming up with a model for the Civilian Review Board in Portland. We did a majority report that was voluminous. They got reading assignments uh, every week for the next meeting, so they came prepared because I had done all the research and I wanted them to do all the research. We issued a minority report, a majority report. We went to before City Hall and I testified about this and submitted this report. However, at the time, Gary Blackmer was the city auditor and this was going to fall in the auditing office. He didn't like some of the things we wanted and ended up kind of doing a hybrid of what we asked. And that's 
So that was the start of the CRC, the Citizens Review Committee. So what, what year was that? Ooh. I'm thinking that was about 25 years ago, 23 to 20, about 25 years ago. So what would that be? We can do the math. I mean, that seems relatively recent for a semi-big city. Well, 25 years ago, and at the time, the system wasn't, what they came up with wasn't as good as what we wanted. It was better than PIAF, but as good. And I served on that first CRC, and uh, the majority of us resigned in protest from that CRC after about probably a year. Why was that? A case came up, uh, Mehirapoot. He was the uh, indigenous person from Mexico. He got on a bus. He put the change in. He went to sit down. He didn't put enough money in the change for the bus. And the bus driver kept telling me he owed him more money. But he didn't, the, uh, Maheo did not speak English. Well, the, the bus driver kept saying dinero, dinero, which is Spanish, but he was an indigenous person from Mexico. He didn't speak Spanish either. He ends up getting pulled off the bus with witnesses seeing him beaten as he was pulled off the bus. He goes to jail. He doesn't know. I mean, he doesn't speak the language. They're, they're not communicating with him. He has no clue what's going on. He gets released from jail where he is sitting there outside the jail, I can't remember, someplace close by, just sobbing uncontrollably, just, you know, besides himself. They decide he's having a mental health problem, put him in a mental health holding tank. Now he's behind bars. He tries to get out, and I can't remember all the details, but he's trying to get out. This man doesn't know anything is going on, absolutely terrified. He ends up getting shot and killed by the police. He was aggressive. He was fighting for his life. Um, I understand what they were dealing with, but I also understand what he was dealing with. And we were, we were not, the CRC was not allowed to review death, death in custody, shooting by police. That was not within our jurisdiction. We knew that. But these were two separate events is what we said. The site where he was arrested, he was beaten. We had witnesses and third party witnesses could make can to this day make complaints. If you see something and you don't think it's right, you can go down the IPR, Independent Police Review, and file a complaint against that police officer, even if you weren't involved. And there were some people in a storefront watching this that were outraged and filed a complaint. And so we were going to hear that case, that complaint of excessive force on at the arrest. And they Shut up. They said we couldn't do it because we didn't have jurisdiction over uh, uh, death. 
which was, I can't use the word. So you Crap. resigned because the argument was you have you can't have a say, or you you can't wait. Resigned in. the entire board, like the majority of the yes. board resigned. No, I we understand had, that. I'm I, I'm sorry. I meant the royal you, I suppose. Yeah, we were. We knew we had jurisdiction over the arrest. We didn't have jurisdiction over the shooting. He was taken into custody a second time and taken to the mental health. That was not what we were were going to hear. And this was a very political move on the part of the city and the city auditor. And it violated the, the premise of a civilian review board. Yeah. And we all resigned. And then how do we, so let me circle back. And to, but it didn't stop there. You know, I, of course I, you didn't stop. No, no, I believe me. But that, but that, <laughs> and so like, I never, my son, my son wanted to go to all 50 states before he graduated from high school. So we used to take a, a spring break and a fall break and we'd go to different states. And it didn't matter where we were. If there was a police officer walking down the street or I saw one, I went over to them, made my my husband and my son absolutely not. No, mom, please. And I had a set of questions I would ask them. How large is the city? How many are on the police force? What's the educational requirement? Um, what's your starting pay? What What's, you know, I just was trying to get a sense of all the different cities, how their bureaus were structured? Were they community policing? Did they work with the neighborhood? Um, and I just developed an incredible wealth of knowledge. And as a byproduct of that, I started having people in other parts of the country calling me. Hey, we're trying to set up a civilian review board or, Hey, we just had this horrible thing happen with the police. What do we do? TVA? And I'd say, I am not a, why are you calling me? I, I am not, I am not an expert. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Well, what, what's your ideas? And so there was this general yearning from communities and frankly, from many police bureaus for a professional police force. The weird byproduct of all this research, which just went on for probably easily a decade, it consumed my life. I mean, I have a three-drawer file system with, you know, my house bills, my work, you know, that stuff. I have two six-drawer files of police studies and police work and, and contacts and um, I get diverted like high speed chases. You shouldn't do high speed chases in a city when you're jeopardizing the safety of citizens. Like then I go down that path or uh, crowd control. So what started happening is I, I kept beating on the door of the police bureau, pushing, pushing, pushing. We're community policing organizations. 
It's I figured out it's who you hire. That's what we have to concentrate. It's who you hire. That's a critical decision. If we're community policing, why isn't there a citizen sitting on the oral board? Why isn't there a citizen voice? So there's three people interviewing in those days, and it, I got it so that one of them was a citizen. And that we had a voice of the kind of citizen, of the kind of police officers we want here. Then I recognized, well, every time there was a new chief, things would shift. And what the sergeants did and what the lieutenants did were critical. It was the leadership that influenced behavior. Well, we need to have citizens on the promotion board. So I got on into that process. They bring in officers from other parts of the country that were at that, like if you're you're trying to promote two lieutenants. They got lieutenants from other parts of the country. Nobody from Portland sitting there. Just they bring these people in and they do a week of testing and uh, interviews and scenarios and things. And so then I was sitting and I was doing the promotion board. Then um, so, Rosie Sizer. Hey, TJ, became, let me let me yeah. ask you. I have a couple questions. First, circling back to the initial event that caused you to become interested in this, the the killing of the little boy. In that yeah. case, you so that's where this idea of a of a citizen police review commission comes into your mind. Does that come into your mind because you were trying to as a citizen who was moved by this event profoundly and obviously you still are you were trying to understand what occurred and you felt like there needs to be a citizen involved and privy to some of this information that is not released to the public so that we can wrap our minds and arms around these kinds of situations? In part, yes. But a bigger part of that was well, which I was get to was the training and the policies and the procedures. Like the FBI in a hostage right. situation, the FBI says you wait them out. You establish contact, you build trust, no matter how long that takes, and you wait them out. That I didn't see that anywhere in the police directives. At that time, when I when I found out that piece of it, the, the FBI on hostage taking situations, I go look at the. I have I had the police directives. When they come out with new one, I get a new one. Well, it wasn't in there, and and that that's huge. Uh, every officer should have hostage negotiation skills. Well, there there were a few. You could choose to go through that special training. But it wasn't, it wasn't standard procedure that you did. Uh, there was no command set up. Like they should have just stopped, set up a command structure, got a hostage negotiator in there, and waited. But that wasn't done. It wasn't in the directives. Those officers didn't have that knowledge. And so part of what the Citizen Review Board does is make recommendations on policy. We, they hear complaints from citizens. 
I tell everybody, you've got a beef with a cop. Don't fight him. Don't argue with him. Whatever goes down, let it go down. Get home safely. The next morning, you go into the IPR, Independent Police Review, and you file a complaint. Yeah. So and the, the objective of that is that you, you change the behavior of the police. Listen, you cannot have a successful business. I don't care what it is, a store, a beauty shop, whatever, if you don't know what your customers need and want. Well, we're the customers for the police force. And if we don't have a voice, how are they expected to know what their job is if we aren't telling them what we want? The blunt statement that I've always believed is you get the police force you deserve. Right. And if well, you and as we've seen, that can go either up, way. Yeah. And so the biggest part of the police review board for me was not just hearing complaints, but uh, affecting policy. And the very first policy the sitting CR went, C, CRC went for, first meeting, first time, and I was driving it, was a policy of de-escalation. Any situation you walk into as a police officer, you should be thinking, how do I de-escalate this situation? It did not exist. That thought process did not exist. I don't want them to be law enforcement officers. I want them to be peace officers. It may just sound like words to you, but in the ultimately... They, what they need to do is maintain the peace in the city. And sometimes you do that by not enforcing the law. If you're going to arrest that guy for littering and he's, and he's nuts and he's got a gun, you don't arrest him for littering. I don't know if you were around at the time. That Charles just sounds Moose like was, common sense. It does, doesn't it? But when they're told they're law enforcement, the number one thing every officer has in this country, and I'm sorry I'm going down this wormhole, um, is discretion. They choose whether they're going to give you that speeding ticket or not. They all have discretion. Well, the discretion, the deciding thing in that decision of discretion should be maintaining the peace. Charles Smith was chief of police, African-American guy, had a problem with his temper, anger management, but he was dedicated to community policing. He lived in North Portland with his wife. I don't remember what happened. Something happened, and a bunch of people went to his home and were out there protesting. And, I mean, a lot of people. I want to say like 50, 70 people were out there protesting. He gets a call from the precinct saying you okay, we're going to send the squad cars. How many do you want? And he said, I don't want you to send any police cars. He walked out there without a uniform on or anything and talked to them, calmed them down, found out what the issues were, and all those people went home. 
There was no violence. He de-escalated the situation. He could have called the cops. They could have arrested all of them. There would have been violence and there would have been problems. De-escalation is the key. And Gary Blackmere, we we tried for almost two years, how long we were there, a year and a half, whatever it was, we tried to get de-escalation. And he'd say, well, you need to study this or you need to find best practices. You need to, none of that was a task of a citizen's review board. We make policy recommendations. We don't write them. We don't do the research. That's the bureau does that part. And he tied us up. We fought us tooth and nail. We never got it. De-escalation. Training is critical. And that, and so that's what I was looking for. I was looking for at the time to prevent this, the policies or the procedures, what was lacking in that directive book that I had from when Nathan was killed, what was missing or what was in it that permitted that to happen? That's what I was trying to find. And once I found it, then, then I had to figure out how to make the Bureau change. And so, like I said, oral board, promotion board, then Rosie Sizer becomes chief of police and she calls me up and says, I get a call from her office. Uh, the chief would like to see you. I'm like, oh my God, what? I had to fight my way in. Moose and I tangled like crazy. Um, I had to fight my way to get in there. And she calls me up and wants to see me. And I thought, okay, all hell's going to break loose. I go in, close the door, sit down. And she says to me, what do you want? What? What do you want? You've been, you know, agitating, you've got the oral board, you got this, you got now, but you're still pushing. What is it you want? How can I help? I want it in training. I thought that every time they do training, there should be a citizen there observing. I they get caught up in what their job is. They don't think about what it looks like to the public. Like I we were trying to get into ban cussing they at the time they said it was a control that's how it was a control tactic that's how they controlled the situation was by calling them motherfuckers sorry audience and you know shut your fucking mouth and etc yeah well it just looks bad it's unprofessional it's unprofessional and what they don't well that's the way they speak well that might be the way they speak but when you've got citizens watching this go down and they can't tell the difference between a police officer and the, the person they're trying to op- apprehend by the way they speak, that's a problem. I had a nun in fourth grade. We had 40, over 40 students in our class. She was four feet tall. She had no problem controlling the class. You know how, how, how ER rooms can just explode those those nurses those doctors don't cuss they get control all kinds of people can control situations without using foul language so that was something i wanted in training so i went through crowd control training i went through i actually went through secret some secret service training 
whenever there was a training opera, uh, opportunity, I got let in. And, and that was, they, they get into their job, which is natural and normal, but they lose the citizen's perspective. And it's hard to support something you don't understand or at the surface doesn't look right. Does that make sense? It does. I can't help but think of, I'm sure you've heard these criticisms before, but I'm interested in your thoughts on criticisms like, like I hear this all the time in the legal profession, although nobody complains about our, a citizen being on our ethics board. Um, Like, you know, if there's, if somebody complains, there's, there's citizens on the medical board, et cetera. Um, I think that that's typical in professions, but I will say I've heard complaints from various professionals, again, not necessarily lawyers, but various people who have these citizens scrutinizing what they did. Or I hear this from clients, for instance, like I might have a client who is a truck driver and I'm defending him in an accident. And there's a question about how he was driving and his performance. And he might say, well, they can't really say because they don't do what I do and they haven't been doing it for this long. And so as a, obviously as a lawyer, you have a huge task ahead of you where you have to educate the jury about policies and procedures, which can be a real snoozer. But I guess the point is there is a criticism that I've heard often enough that how, how could it's, it's unfair to have somebody who doesn't do what you do um, Monday morning quarterbacking your performance. And how do you answer those kinds of, especially in regard to discipline, you know? And so how would you answer those kinds of criticisms? Well, I, the citizen review board went through extensive training, um, but The criticism, most of the cases we heard were a case of unrealized expectations on both sides. The police have an expectation of what the citizen should do. And the citizen has an expectation of what the police are supposed to do. And it's the lack of communication between those two that generates when I was on serving on the CRC and I'm still involved in the CRC. I, I'm an advocate. If you want to file a complaint against the and this came about later, this was something they didn't do initially. Um, if you want to file a complaint against a police officer, they investigate it independently, and then they send you a letter of their findings, and then you go, well, I don't agree with that, and you can appeal, and you right. appeal to a board. Well, they don't understand that in order for their complaint to be sustained, it had to violate policy or a directive. No citizen knows what the police policy or directive is. That's so completely unrealistic. Well, you probably run into that with the law a lot, too. 
but they have a sense of fairness. You probably run into that too. And so uh, there was a there's a there was a fair mission where they stop everybody getting off the max train and check to make sure they paid their fare. So there's a number of police officers there. It's a fair mission. This guy's got a lariat on his neck with his pass, his annual pass, hanging there. He comes off the TriMet. He sees what's going on, but he's got his pass in plain sight. He's he's glad they're doing this mission and getting all these people who aren't paying their fair share um, and giving them tickets. And he just walks through all this. And he can hear, stop, sir, stop, sir, stop, sir. But he knows they're not talking to him because he's got his tag there and he didn't, he paid his fare. He's not one of the bad guys. When he feels somebody grab him by the elbow, uh, assertively and turn him around. I said to stop and then is hostile towards him. Well, he files a complaint. The officer was rude. The officer got me for no reason, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, the officer's impression is, I'm a cop. I'm on a mission. I am doing my job. I have told you to stop. You are to stop. The citizen is, I haven't done anything wrong. They're not talking to me. I can keep going. This is just two people with completely unrealistic expectations of the other side. And I heard it over and over and over again. I think the other value of a citizen's review board is it forces communication between the citizen and the cop. The the officer needs to hear over and over again, I wasn't doing anything wrong. Why were you so gruff with me? I heard a lot of complaints that they, they didn't identify themselves as a police officer. They didn't know it was a cop. I heard, and that, and, and so that does help resolve a lot of the problems. But for back to what you said, how can you judge something if you don't do the job? This is, I can't, I'm saying this, on the, I'm saying this in public. I can't believe I'm saying this. My father had a saying, um, when I, when I, um, where I was raised, the little town I was raised in, in California, you had to live in the city if you were a police officer there. You had to live in, within the city limits. And the town was bifurcated. There was a boulevard, you know, with all the stores and everything. And everything above the boulevard were single occupied owner resident homes. Everything below the a majority of the stuff below the boulevard were rentals. And we had a little tiny house on a big piece of land. And my father had built three sets of duplexes on in the back. And they were very nice. Hardwood floors, walk-in closets, attached garages. And every the majority of our tenants were new hire police officers. Because they were nice. And they couldn't afford to buy a home yet. They'd just been hired. And in the summertime, when they'd sit out on the lawn, um, you know, because it'd get dark late at night, I would sit out there with them in the summertime and listen to the adults talk. I never met this person. His name was Louis Valentine. 
never met him, never laid eyes on him. But every summer I heard stories about Officer Louis Valentine. Louis Valentine did not like Cubans. Our neighborhood was having Cubans moved in because of what was going on with Castro. He didn't like Cubans. And if he pulled over an attractive woman for a traffic ticket, he liked to hustle her. You know, not give her a ticket. Why don't you go out with me type of thing. Every single summer during my childhood, I would hear one of the new hired cops, how did your day go today? Oh, my God, I pulled over somebody Louie Valentine had pulled over. I pulled over a woman who Louie had pulled over. Or I pulled over a kid. And, and how horrible that, that had, ha- had been because that citizen had formed their opinion of this police bureau based on one officer who was bad. Louis Valentine. So by the time I got to about 14, I were out there one summer and this young officer said, oh man, this woman, she didn't want to roll down her window. She was, you know, he's telling us about that, them about this horrible traffic and it, Louis Valentine had pulled her over and apparently been pretty aggressive about wanting to go out with her. And I, at 14 years of age, go, well, why don't you just tell on him? And they were like, you don't understand. And you can't, we're new hires. And we can't, and I didn't know it at the time, but that was my first lesson in the thin blue line. Hmm. And my father had this saying that he would always tell these young officers when they got hired. Just remember You can't work in the dump and not get the stink on you. Well, when you got to think when they're getting called, call after call, concerning domestic violence, drug use, I mean, they're really dealing with the underbelly of life. It's hard for them not to get jaded. And any involvement that the citizenry, like us, the good, oh, oh, Kirsten, the good need to get louder. We need to be involved with them. They need more contact with us. They need to hear from us. Tom Potter still does um, commencements for a police academy. He's kind of seen nationally as the godfather of community policing. He and I have become very good friends. And at every single commencement exercise he does at a police academy, the number one advice he gives them, keep the friends you had when you entered the academy. So that piece of you can't judge me if I don't do the job, the flip side of that is if you only hang out with the people who do the job, then you lose Contact. You lose perspective. And so I understand what you're saying, that double-edged sword with people who don't do the job judging. But I think it's incredibly invaluable, so valuable for police officers to hear what we're thinking. And assuming, which is a big assumption, that the people sitting on that board are the good, are the 
average citizen or the law-abiding people, then that's good input, and they need to hear it. That was the longest answer ever, huh, Kirsten? <laughs> I think that's a I think that's a good answer, and I think, like you said, you get the police you deserve, right? So this can all have a double-edged sword to it. I mean, you go to one of these accountability commission meetings, and you'd think you're, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, you'd think they literally just picked everybody who thinks literally all cops are bastards who want, who, who yeah. think there shouldn't be police and put yeah. them on this commission. And that may or may not be oh. true. That, that was just my opinion and my, my impression from going to a few of these and listening to these people and then, you know, following up to find out who exactly, who, who a little bit, not who exactly, but just a, a internet impression of who they are and they're loud and proud about where they stand on police. And I, 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 am I it's interesting so, who we're putting in charge so of this nervous. stuff. Yeah. I am so nervous. I, I, yeah. Well, let's talk you're about that. Because yeah, you're not the only one with that opinion. Um, the first problem that we have is the, the approach from Commissioner Hardesty of you burn it to the ground and then rebuild from nothing. What a ridiculous premise. We had made changes. The, the CRC isn't perfect, I'll tell you that. It wasn't perfect. It should have had subpoena power, the ability to compel testimony. Now, is that gone? Is the CRC gone? Sort of. Okay. Because there's so many police accountability commissions, I can't keep track of them. You probably know what they all are. The CRC is still there, but they haven't held any hearings. They're not really doing anything. Um, Like one of the... (laughs) When a citizen made a complaint, as I said earlier, you know, they didn't, they needed to understand you had to violate a policy or a directive in order to have that sustained. Well, we wanted them to have somebody with them, like somebody from the CRC, like a citizen to help guide them through the process. When they would come into this room, there would be like nine hearing officers, for lack of better words, the CRC people facing them. The room was set up in a U. The other side was the police attorney, the HR from police, internal review. So this guy had three cops, basically police officer people on that table. The other table had the city attorney, the director of the IPR, the, and they're all in suits. And then this one citizen was supposed to come in there and tell them why the decision was wrong on the complaint they filed and make a case with no knowledge of policy or directive. And that's just not right. Well, a few years back, they said that that person needs to have a, well, they say it's an appeal process advisor, but I always said I was an appeal process advocate. Yeah. And they would ask for me. I represented two police officers who went through it. I would meet with them, say, what do you want out of this process? I'd explain everything for them, and we did really well. Well, that was a reform to the current CRC. That process needed to continue to happen. It should have been not a reasonable person standard. It should have been a preponderance of evidence standard. 
It should, they should have subpoena. We should have amended the current process. That was 80% where it should have been instead of burning it to the ground. When we did the majority report and the minority report, I managed, I chaired that process and I managed to just generally piss off both sides. The, for lack of, for lack of better description, the left thought I was a cop lover and yeah. the right thought I was a cop hater. I, so I think I did a good job. Right. I have never believed that the citizens should handle discipline ever. That's a management tool. That is a critical management tool. Yeah. You do not get out of the manager's hand. That's interesting. Now, Cause when I was in one of these meetings, that's exactly what they're looking to do. That's exactly what they're looking to do, but they don't work with that person. Now, I don't know. I think that's the point. But but that isn't the listen. <laughs> you, you and I are, you don't need to convince me. You and I are on right. the same page. But you the audience needs to understand. Yeah, you can have you're running a successful company. It's a family owned business, and you've got twenty employees. One does the same infraction as somebody else. One of them gets fired. The other one gets a reprimand. But they did exactly the same thing. But I own this company. The one that got fired. This is the eighth time I've had a discipline problem with him. And he needs to leave. The other one that gets reprimand has a perfect record, works hard, always steps up the plate. And his son, I know because I work with him, his son is in the hospital for three weeks in an ICU. I recognize that he has issues Outside of the business, I recognize the potential of him based on his history and working with him. I'm not somebody from the outside saying, you did this, you're fired. That's a management tool. But just a like you said, you, but just like you said, you learned about training through research, yeah. they would say, hey, we'll call them in for questioning. We'll ask them why. We'll look at the files. We'll, we'll subpoena the... Uh, HR docs, and we, you know, we, we can gather all that evidence. I mean, we can we can make no, an de- informed decision about this. They don't know how well they get around uh, along with their coworkers. That's not going to be in a record anywhere. You, as a manager, know. I mean, they're not going to recognize. They say we'll they question everybody. Off. We'll question everybody. Yeah. We'll come observe. We'll come observe. We'll, uh, yeah, we'll come no. to roll call. We'll, we'll, we'll question all everybody uh, in, the, in the precinct who's worked with no, this individual. A good, a good manage, a discipline is a management tool that CRC should have the right to recommend discipline. And the manager needs to say why they chose not to do it. But I've, the citizen board should not have the ability to to mandate the discipline. I that's my personal opinion. I'm not changing my mind on it. I'm trying to understand though the distinction between learning about police training and other techniques through research versus learning about performance through 
the same kind of research, except this time it's via a file and interviews of coworkers and supervisors. Like, I'm just trying to understand where, what is the distinction between one and the other? Because one is on an ongoing basis when they're not under the spotlight or put on the spot. When you do an interview, you're careful about what you say and you carefully choose your words. When it's a day-to-day situation that you're involved with that person, you see things when they're not recognizing they're even being observed. Yeah, but TJ, isn't the criticism from, let's say, a, a hypothetical police officer, you can't talk to me about training, TJ. You have not done training. You didn't do it. You didn't go to the academy. So when you're telling me that I can't put my arm around the guy's throat in this way, have you tried to do that? No, you haven't. So I can tell you in these certain situations, I need to be able to do that because physically X, Y, and Z. I mean, I, I guess I I guess I just don't understand the distinction. Um, it's I, I think it's... Because when he's telling me that, I can say to him, do you know the way that looks to the citizenry? Do you know what, that this, is it worth it to blow up the relationship between the citizen and the the police bureau by doing that? But aren't they going to say the same thing in regard to discipline, right? Like this, this accountability commission is going to say, yeah, but the things that outrage the public the most are when officers are not held accountable via discipline. And and they, I'm surprised there wasn't a huge riot. Maybe there was, and I missed it, but it, there couldn't have been because I wouldn't have missed it. It couldn't have been huge. Um, I'm surprised there wasn't a huge riot when they reinstated that, not reinstated, but they, they, didn't, um, they didn't get rid of absolutely everybody involved in the false hardesty, Joanne Hardesty, Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, accusation that she was involved in some kind of hit and run turned out to be false. Some, not all of these people were axed, and I think there a fair amount of people were very upset about that. And they would say, "Look, TJ, this is why we need to be involved in the disciplinary process. This is terrible optics." <laughs> well, uh, first of all, this—if they do that, you and I both know. It's not going anywhere for so long. It is going to be tied up in the courts forever because it violates the union contract, which is a legally binding document. Right. So I'm just talking know. philosophically. So uh, it- Philosophically. Let me tell you, that the very last case I did, um, this woman um, wanted a policy change. And it had to do with the DMV documenting things. You go in there to get your title. Uh, you surrender your bill of sale to them, and they give you a receipt. The car gets stolen, and they will not take a police report because she can't prove it's hers because she doesn't have the registration. She gives them the DMV receipt that says that the it's in process, and, and the DMV gives it to you for exactly that purpose, And they won't do a stolen vehicle report because it doesn't prove it. So there's some sort of gap between the DMV and police directive. 
on reporting stolen vehicles. That's very obvious. So she files a complaint with the CRC. And they start talking about this, uh, the, the, the hearing people, Avalos, they start talking about the officer's action and that he needs to be disciplined for not taking a report. And they're talking discipline, 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 discipline. When she says to me privately, I, I just want this policy changed. I'm not interested in discipline. And so I say, excuse me, because I'm the APA. I'm allowed to speak for, for the complaints. I said, excuse me, um, the complaints and the citizen isn't really interested in, in disciplining the officer. Uh, she's going through this process because she wants this policy addressed. She wants this gap between the DMV and the city addressed. Just to be clear, this was all, for context for the audience, this was all during your citizen police training no, this is all during an actual hearing oh, wow. with current CRC with <laughs> wow. Avalos chair okay. and a literal complaint, a citizen telling me this. Because I, know, I, I knew am, that Candace Avalos did the citizen training with you. And so I really just thought maybe we were talking about a hypothetical, but this all occurred. Okay. No, she is the chair of the CRC. Yeah. And so I say, excuse me, and very politely say, that her, she didn't file this to discipline the officer. What she filed this for was to address this problem, this gap between the DMV and the, the car owner. And I got reprimanded. We, we aren't here. What your, what your complainants want doesn't concern us. We're here to address the deficiency in the police bureau. But whatever she went on to say, she basically told that citizen that this process really w- wasn't for her for her purposes. It was to discipline cops. Yeah. And that isn't what the citizen wanted. I had an I, an actual case. I had another guy who was pulled over for speeding on a motorcycle. There were two other motorcyclists that he wasn't with, but they were there. He thought the cop was going after them because he wasn't speeding, and they had shot past him. And it's a motorcycle officer with his lights on. He doesn't get pulled over quick enough, That my complainant. And so the officer on the motorcycle nudges him off the road. It's because when in traffic stops, a motorcycle frequently takes off, doesn't stop for the police officer, but takes off on him because they can shoot in between traffic and everything. So they developed this policy that when it is, the, the motorcycle is not pulling over quick enough, you get alongside of them and you start kind of like a herding dog, pushing them over to the side, not physical contact, but you're close. You're, you're hurting him like a herding dog. Well, this particular guy wasn't fighting the tra- traffic ticket, even though he said it wasn't him. Wasn't, but he was a trained, um, like he had all these certifications in motorcycle racing and motorcycle training. And I mean, he was, he, he was a big to do in the motorcycle world. He said that policy was dangerous of pushing them over to the side. He said it wasn't a problem for him, 
but he said to me, TJ, if you've got some novice on a motorcycle that doesn't know how to handle a motorcycle and this starts happening, they're going to get injured. They're not going to know how to handle it. This is going to be scary. They're going to freak out, turn too sharp. I mean, I don't know motorcycles. But he filed a complaint solely to get them to change that policy because he perceived it to be dangerous for people who were not adept at motorcycle skills. I mean, that's because the CRC, this is my personal opinion, biggest usage is policy, recommending policy, and that's what he wanted done. So many times it was, the objective was not to get this cop in trouble or get this cop fired or many times it was something else. And that is a critical piece of us, of a citizen's review board. That's the citizen's voice to the bureau. I bet I still haven't answered your question. (laughs) Um, No, I think, I think that you did. Um, be, I guess, I guess the, um, I mean, philosophically, you have to, I mean, I don't know, it's still really, I think it's still kind of difficult um, because. I don't believe interviews in secondhand or thirdhand kind of go back and tell me about this. I don't think they are ever. And it's just the nature of the beast ever as accurate or effective as actual day-to-day interactions. I know, but the argument about training is the same, which is you can't tell us how we should be trained because we know and you don't. And if you want to know, go through the academy and be a cop for six months. And then let's talk about training. Um, Okay, well, at years ago, like probably 20 years ago, that's exactly what happened. I mean, besides me going to the training thing, that I went through the Citizens Academy. And at that time, it was several weeks long, a couple hours, a night, one night a week. And you did, I don't even know how many weeks it was, you did um, gun training, scenario training, uh, skid car training, you did this extensive piece of every training the police had. And it was exactly for the purpose of citizens understanding what the training is and what it's for. I frankly found it that time a little frustrating for me. At the end, I said, because there was so much information jammed at you, it was like being in a lecturing class all the time, and it never gave the audience the opportunity to do any pushback, which, honestly, probably the rest of the people in the room didn't have any pushback. But I did. I wanted to say, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Why didn't you do this? Or wait a minute. Why couldn't you do that? Um, but that was the intent. And they have uh, reinstituted the Citizens Academy, although now it's from 
I see. I got there. It was two weeks ago. I got there at seven thirty in the morning. And I left about five thirty. So it's very compressed, but the uh, intent is the same. Um, it's. I understand what you're saying, and I I do, and I know not everybody is the type A personality I am, or had those pregnancy hormones going through them when their 12-year-old was killed in their neighborhood. Um, but I do think any authentic dialogue between a citizen and a police officer is advantageous to both sides and should happen more frequently. Yeah, I agree. I don't I don't disagree with that. Although, I mean, um, I think it's interesting that you talked about the union contract because arguably depend if the union contract had said something different when you started the police board, the oversight board, theoretically the contract would say you can't say anything to us about training. I mean, right? Cuz it it outlines the scope of a lot of what can be what you can really do or not. And then my guess is, I don't know. I mean, as a, somebody with that kind of background in police accountability, who literally started this kind of oversight in our city of Portland, TJ, what do you think about things like these union contracts that, that sort of constrict and constrain that sort of thing? I mean, obviously in our current climate where we have all these anti-police people, in my opinion, on the, review board, it can be helpful, I think, to protect our police force from dwindling further down or even getting to zero, frankly. Um, But when things are going the way they're supposed to and you have some level-headed people, in my opinion, on the (laughs) review commission, possibly these union contracts could be frustrating. The union contract, okay, I'm sorry, now, now we're back to TJ's past. Okay, so I already told you I thought the key was who you hire. Then I thought it was who you promoted. Well, the third piece of that was like a big dummy. I went, wait a minute, you got to follow the money. <laughs> so I joined the Bureau Advisory Committee. Their job is to review the annual budget. I ended up chairing that. And a huge part of the budget, and then you testify before the city council on the budget, what should change, what shouldn't change, or, you know, where more money, for for a citizen's perspective. And when I got on that board, uh, once again, remember, I'm not the brightest bulb. Um, The budget is voluminous, and I don't have an accounting background. I have a business degree, but I don't have an accounting background. And the contract is a huge part of that budget process. It's like the underbelly of it for the police bureau. So I went out and I found me somebody with a a, a master's in finance, and she managed a bank budget that was bigger than the police budget. I found a federal uh, labor law attorney, uh, graduated from Harvard, and uh, he could look at the contract and tell us what the contract meant. So I stacked this board. I had about six people and all of them were 
smarter than me, uh, better trained than I was, and could break things down for us. And so that contract, um, I think probably like most contracts, is good and bad. Uh, I think one of the problems we have is that so many officers don't live in Portland. I understand why they don't live in Portland, but but that gets them out of contact with the community they serve. Part of why they, part of what allows them to do that is we had in their union contract when I was chairing the BAC, they automatically got four and a half hours. Like say they got four hours at time and a half anytime they had to go to court. And, you know, well, you're an attorney. A lot of times you go to court, especially traffic court, and, and it's set over or, or the witness doesn't show up. Yeah, but a lot of times you sit there all day, even though the only time you're actually spending working on your case is like two minutes or something because you're waiting. So I... We started, we reached out to other jurisdictions of cities of our size and asked them about their court time in the contract. No, there wasn't a single jurisdiction that got four hours of time and a half. Most of them got two hours. Some of them got actual time, but most of them just got two hours. And four hours at time and a half was when you asked about that, it's like, well, I got to drive in from Battleground or I got to drive in from Wilsonville. So we're, we're paying them to not live close by. That's kind of it. So we tried to go after that. Um, there were so many things. And overtime is the biggest part of the police budget. The overtime is just incredible what it does. It blows up their budget every year. Well, at the time, Mike Krebs was the commander at Southeast or at East. They had the highest call load for calls per precinct, and they had the lowest amount of overtime. And we went, well, what's that about? So we went out. That's when I met Mike Krebs. We went out to talk to Mike Krebs to find out how he kept his overtime down. And so we said to him when we were leaving, I said to him, why, well, I hope during your best practice meetings, when your precinct commanders get together and talk about what's going on, I, we, do you share this? Because this is critical in keeping the budget tapped down. And he looked at me, he's like, what? What precinct commander meetings? What are you talking about best practices? I'm like, oh my God, they're not even talking to each other. The contract is Will Aitchison and Robert Robert King was president of the police union when we were trying to get the CRC through. And Will Aitchison was the attorney for the police union for, for, for a very long time. And that contract negotiations are behind closed doors with no public input, which I understand why, because that... I don't, I can't even imagine trying to navigate, but that contract is, is definitely an issue that needs to be looked at. I mean, we, 
when after I did the lieutenant uh, uh, promotion thing one time, I get a call from uh, a lieutenant, and could we please have some coffee? And this, this this still happens to this day. I get a call from a cop who wants to talk to me about something. So I go to have coffee with him, and he's brand new lieutenant. Probably been a lieutenant about three months, and uh, he'd come through the promotion that I had been participant in. TJ, quick question, quick question. How did they learn about you? Obviously, you're going to like the Citizen Academy, et cetera. You started the first accountability board, but sometimes those pieces of history, I mean, the Citizen Academy was recent, but sometimes the pieces of history about, you know, for instance, you starting this accountability board or commission, I had no idea about that you actually started the very first one ever. I didn't know that. So um, I think it's interesting that they're still calling you. How do they end up learning about you? Do you know? I don't actually. Well, I knew I knew all the chiefs basically knew me. And if they went through the promotion process, because they introduce all the uh, people who are doing the assessment. The funny thing about that promotion thing, the first time I was in one, there's like, Gosh, I don't know, 20 maybe officers from around the country, other jurisdictions. And when they went around and induced themselves and it came to me and I said I was T.J. Browning and I was a citizen of Portland, the immediate response from the room was, what's she doing here? I could feel the hostility. Oh, wow. And the contracting guy who was running this process didn't want me there. And after the very first one... Um, all that changed. Yeah. So a lot of the cops I knew from the oral board or I knew from the promotion. I, uh, I would be walking downtown and somebody would stop and say, Hey, Hey, Miss Brownie. And I go, yeah. Oh, I just want to talk to you about the oral boards. You were the only one that smiled at me. You know, I, I, before they would come in the room, I turned to the two people in the bureau and I said, Hey, Give them a warm handshake and give them a smile. Everybody interviews better when they feel relaxed. Let's, let's be welcoming. And, of course, they never did it. But I did because I knew we'd get a better interview off of them. And I'd run into them in the street. I can't tell you how many times. That was so nice of you to smile at me. And it just made me relax. So I think some of the things I did that was somewhat different, they remembered. And... This guy had gone through the lieutenant uh, uh, process hire, uh, promotion, and he'd been promoted, and he should have been. And so we're having coffee, and I don't know why he wants to have coffee. Um, and he says to me, he finally says, do you know why I became a lieutenant? And I said, no, but I'm, I thank you so much. You're very qualified. You did a great job. I'm so pleased that you promoted. That's great. And he said, well, it really isn't. Because I became a lieutenant because I wanted, there's some people on the bureau who should not be here. There's a, they're, they're not very many, but they're, they make our lives hard. They're not good cops and they need to go. I became a lieutenant so I could fire some people. And I said, wow, well, I'm really glad to hear that. I mean, there are, you know, it only takes a few bad apples and everybody pays the price. And that is true. And he says, uh, I said, well, good for you. And he said, I can't 
do my job, TJ. I said, what? You can't fire them. The contract, the union. Yeah, I mean, what happens is we just, we don't want them in our division. We transfer them out. They just keep getting transferred to other people and they're a problem for them too. And I can't fire them because of the contract. I've heard that so many times. They can't get rid of the people they want to get rid of. Yeah, that's and the biggest criticism about police in general, I think, from the public is we know they're, I mean, I mean, especially after George Floyd, I think the general sentiment is from, from the wary public is, hey, we know there are these, and I, I don't think there's a Derek Chauvin in every bureau, to be clear, but I think right. because we all had this, the majority of Americans had a pretty severe reaction to what I think was a really terrifying, horrifying, abhorrent video, right. basically a snuff film um, of a murder and what has determ- been determined legally to be a murder and what even Donald Trump called a murder. I think the general sentiment in America was, hey, there are these Derek Chauvin's floating around and we can't get rid of them because of the goddamn police unions. And because of but this, you know this thin blue I've line. That. Haven't you heard that, though, in the um, teachers' union? We can't get rid of the bad teacher? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, but I think but they I would don't say... Under, but I don't understand that. How are you serving your union members when you're allowing somebody who doesn't do their job well, and make all the other people's jobs harder? That's what Aaron Schmautz says. That's exactly right. And that's why... He, when he came in, um, I told him straight up, I said, I think your police union should be abolished. Like, all respect to your job. I just think you're standing in the way of citizen confidence, community confidence. I don't like public unions. And he was like, yeah, okay, well, let's just have a conversation. Um, we, we actually, even before that, we talked on the phone for hours. And because he's so interesting and he's so smart, very well, relatively quickly, I understood the need for a police union and he dispelled my fears about things like that immediately because he said things like it doesn't serve. I mean, it all depends on who's the head of the union. Right. But with Aaron, my God, that guy, (laughs) he could do anything. I mean, literally anything he wants. I mean, he's, he's so smart and he's so thoughtful and I really admire him. And what he said is it doesn't serve my officers and it doesn't serve me to have a bunch of garbage police floating around. And, and I said, but isn't it your job to defend these people? And I said, no big deal if it is. Cause I defend unsavory people all the time. I mean, I don't, I'm not a public defender, but from time to time, um, yeah. I, I might have a civil case where I don't really like my client and I think he he's not a good person but I don't I I think we have some defenses here and I don't I don't really think he should he did maybe x y or z or if if when I was doing insurance defense as a baby lawyer it is kind of like a public defender in the sense that you just get what you get and (laughs) most of the time these people are horrible these people you're defending are are terrible people that you you never want to um hang out with for more than two seconds personally but 
you know, you're, you're having to defend them for whatever various reasons they're being alleged to right. have done something terrible. And so as an insurance defense lawyer, you're, and I kind of understood it because you're, you're getting rid of those. Like you don't want to try those. You, you don't want to humiliate yourself, make yourself look like an a-hole in front of the jury. So you're telling your client who's the insurance company, look, you have a big problem here. You've got a bad insured that, that may or may not have done these bad things and they're going to look bad to the jury and you want to pay some money in this or whatever. And Aaron was basically saying that about the police union. Like he was like, look, I, I look at the parameters about what, what can be done and what can't be done. And if I see somebody that I think isn't going to pass muster under our policies or procedures, I don't like, I'm not going to stand by them and argue with a straight face that they need to stay on the bureau. Like, how does that serve any of us? And it's terrible for the community. I blew me away with that answer. Leadership. Who's in the leadership matters. Oh, well, totally. we know that, don't we? Because we live in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> the other thing, the other thing, I'm yeah, no kidding. The other thing about um, the CRC or a, a true community policing, which we can't do right now because we don't have the manpower, is um, a major component besides citizen involvement or a piece of that even is transparency. Yeah. We need, and I got, transparency needs to be another, here it goes, and the good needs to get louder. The Portland Police Bureau right now is doing an amazing job at transparency. I mean, amazing. I, I am absolutely shocked. So what happened to me is um, I, a little bit of background, sorry. I organized a, I was one of two organizers that organized a neighborhood summit in, back in March inviting all over 90 neighborhood associations to come together. What I had figured out or what was occurring in my daily life, I'm the safety chair for my neighborhood. I'm very, very organized. I'm very, very uh, passionate about it. And it's part of that community policing uh, theory that I've totally embraced. But I was starting to have other neighborhood associations reach out. Hey, we've got this problem. I see you. You've been working on it. What What can we do? What did you use? What was your strategy? Who did you talk to? And it just became very apparent. I mean, whenever I talk about a problem in my neighborhood with the city, I always say, and I don't want you taking care of this in my neighborhood by sending it to another neighborhood. I want this problem solved. Always say that. Well, it seemed to me it was pretty apparent every neighborhood in this city is fighting the same fight and we're just doing it individually. That's exactly right. And we're just playing whack-a-mole. And we're not sharing yeah, information, and, which is why I loved it when you so called and said, let's share to, information. Let's get all together. Let's, let's coalesce a message or problems that we can address in a unified voice. So when a neighborhood would respond and RSVs that they were going to come to the summit, we had 60 come, I would send them a survey that a friend of mine who's an international market researcher wrote. And my idea was that we, we could then hit the ground running. I wanted to know what their issues were, what the problems were, what they had done, which agencies they had called, were those agencies effective or not, 
if there was any one agency, bureau, or person who did was helpful, who were they and what they did. So when this survey came back, the first shocking piece of information I got was the number one effective bureau and or agency in this city is the Portland Police Bureau. Number one. Fire Bureau was second. Yeah. But you, when you, when, if, did you call this agency, were they helpful, somewhat helpful, not helpful at all, never responded. Those were their four choices. The Portland Police Bureau was ranked number one. It was interesting to say the least. And were you surprised? So, and so, and then on TJ, the list. were you surprised? Uh, were you surprised? Um, yeah, I was. Because all I ever hear is complaints. Somebody broke into my house, or I sat on 911 for 30 minutes and the police never arrived. The police, my car got stolen. The police won't take a report. The police, all I ever hear from people is what the police do not do. I never hear what they do from anybody. And under compliments, Every single police compliment was, I hope you're sitting down, a nerd officer. Yeah, well, those guys are the bomb. Got men and women. Those are those those. They're all incredible. They're they're no kidding. They're now. You know what? I don't know if if you have Instagram, but my understanding is that Bike Squad, which is just absolutely beloved in Old Town and downtown pbb central bike squad they have an instagram account if anybody's not following it they need to follow it immediately if they have instagram and you can find it it's pbb central nrt bike squad so they were under the portland business association and the fear was when aaron came on he instilled fear in all of us because he said oh i think they might get cut i don't know that they have funding and you know we we had that defunding in 2020 and we're bringing the money back but it's all going to all these various places and not necessarily to the places it was before. And anyway, so now the bike squad is part, everybody will be happy to know, part of the NRT, which is the neighborhood response neighborhood team. Neighborhood response team. And yeah. these people, so you can find them at PPB Central Bike Squad on Instagram. And these people have the most incredible Instagram account. And if you go look at that and you watch what they're doing every day in Old Town and Downtown, it will blow your mind. It is like the craziest, um, the craziest episode of Cops that you've ever seen in your life. And they're doing this every single day. And the amount of guns and drugs that they're taking off people is amazing. And for people who think that cops aren't doing anything about drugs since measure 110, and that such and such is legal since measure 110, go to bike squad. It's not, they are busting these people right and left. They're busting people who are publicly using drugs. They're busting people for, um, they, they're tracking down stolen cars. They're tracking down bicycles. They're tracking down stolen stolen property of all types. It's absolutely incredible what they've been doing. And that is just an example of what your neighborhood resource team can do for you. And ours is teeny tiny. TJ and I share the same one under Central Precinct. 
Um, so we share the same, we don't have the bike people because it's too difficult for them to get all the way out there, but we have the same neighborhood response team as downtown, as old town, as the West Hills, all the way to Cesar Chavez and up to Laurelhurst. So we, it's enormous. It's like, um, 40 some 41.3, I think square miles that these people are in charge of. There are three of them that we have. Um, there's, there's also a neighborhood response team in East precinct. So depending on the precinct that you're in, you will have a neighborhood response team. They are, they did not go away. Now they're, they're not a lot of them. They got got cut a lot though. Oh, beyond. In a perfect world, world, for those of you who don't understand, a neighborhood response team is the epitome of community policing. They deal with livability issues in a theory. If we had enough of them, They get to know the neighborhood, they get to know the area, they get to know the problem spots, they get to know the problem people, and they deal with things before they get to the level of crime. They they work proactively, and they work with the community, and they know the players. When when I would call my nerd officer, all I'd have to say is, Monica's back. Oh, my. Okay. (laughs) That's right. And they know. In a perfect world, we have over 90 neighborhood associations. In a perfect world, we'd have at least 50 nerd officers, at least, oh, at because least. their geography would be smaller, and you need two. You need one on every shift. And in Portland, and with our crime rate, like, it would probably be higher. And what do we have right now? I think we have eight in the entire city. Eight. Yeah, just wrap your mind around that. So they're dealing with people like TJ and I reporting, but the public safety officers for the neighborhood and general in general, anybody in the neighborhood who knows who these people are, they're getting all of the emails, all of the calls, all of the, and it's not just before the crime's committed. A lot of it is, hey, there's, there's crime in progress, but it's not the kind of thing that you need to dispatch somebody out for immediately. It's stuff like, there's, you know, I mean, there are open air drug markets all over the city of Portland. So it's more like, hey, I've got one of these in my, now they're not legal. I want to be clear on that. Nobody, nobody thinks they are, but, but there's just too many to deal with. But if you've got one in your neighborhood, they will help you yes. deal with it. Yes. They're wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. They are community policing at its finest. And tell us that story about how you were getting calls on like a Saturday. I mean, this is, this is the type of people these guys are. They will text you. They will call you on a weekend when they're supposed to be with their wife and kids, when they're on vacation. They'll give you their cell phone number. I know. I know. And so I would call him on a Saturday. I knew his days off, but something was going down in the neighborhood. And so I wanted when he came back to work on Tuesday morning that that he would get this message and knew this had happened. That was completely my intent. And he would answer the phone. And I'd say, Matt, it's your day off. What are you doing answering the phone? Well, TJ, I know if you were calling me, it was something important. No, I'm leaving you a message. Go back to your family. What are you doing? I was afraid he was going to get burnt out and I mean, they they're they're off duty. They come. He's they're off duty, and it's it's a neighborhood meeting, and they'll he'll show up and talk to us about what's going on in the neighborhood. He's not on the clock. He's not taking overtime. They they self select. These are people who want these jobs. And when I was on the BAC, that this had to be at least fifteen years ago when I first went on. 
We were trying to, 15 years ago, we were trying to get up to 1,200 officers. We were trying to hire to full capacity. And 15 years ago, it was 1,200 officers. Look how Portland has grown in 15 years. We have 800. Yeah. That's why we don't have NERT officers. They t- they're, they're much more labor intense. They, have, they do a lot of legwork. They work with the public a lot. We need more officers, period. They will go. And go ahead, TJ. I'm afraid that, you know, we're going to hire all these people and they're either going to, you know, get poached by another agency Everybody's looking for police officers. We have a very good reputation in this city, despite what you all think. All that traveling, talking to all those bureaus, witnessing what happened in their jurisdictions and and what they were permitted to do, I would come back to Portland and think, holy cow, we've got a good police bureau. And I used to always say when I was public speaking, if anybody asked me about Portland, Oregon, I would say we have a very good police force. I would give them a B plus in a world where no A's exist. And why not? We should be all striving for A's. We have a good bureau. I want to remind all of you that, you know, it doesn't come up in the press a lot. It never comes up. You would think... Our police officers kill somebody every single day yes, listening would. to activists. We had nine officers involved shooting last year. Nine. We had, of all the calls last year, and there were 278,128 calls last year, 0.0032%. Use deadly force. Think about that. You would never know that listening to the activists. Or reading the press. Or reading the press, yeah. (laughs) Or going onto a local press website. (laughs) And so here's what you need to do for the good to get louder. The good thing that the Portland Police Bureau has done is address transparency. And if you go to the uh, Portland Police Bureau's uh, website, there's something called PPB Open Data, Portland Police Bureau, PPB Open Data. And on that, they have service and information. um, These are the data sources from the Portland Police Bureau that you can go get yourself any day. Services is information. They have Portland crime statistics. They have police staffing numbers. They have officer-involved shooting data. They have police dispatch call dashboard. They have stop data collection. They have shooting incident statistics. They have business district crime summaries. They have police overtime. They have precinct demographics. They have reported bias crime statistics, stolen vehicles. You can go on the Portland Police Bureau and you can look at right now anything you're interested in. Anytime you see a news story, anytime you hear a rumor, 
go look for the facts. Go check out what is really going on. I am not by any means saying the Portland Police Bureau is a perfect bureau. Unfortunately, they're all human beings, and we all know we all make mistakes. I mean, that's just it. And not all, just like any other organization, not all of them are going to be great. But we have a good bureau. And the other thing the activists are big on um, is that the the racially motivated uh, use of force, the the racially motivated um, shootings and whatnot. I don't know who was around when the Department of Justice was brought into Portland. And for those of you who don't know, um, a very respected group of African-Americans brought a lawsuit against Portland for um, uh, killing people because they were black, basically. And they brought this lawsuit and the Department of Justice investigated racial bias crimes or racial violence, uh, bias, violence and shootings by the Portland Police Bureau. The Department of Justice came to town and investigated all of their complaints and found them unfounded. This isn't a Portland Police Bureau investigation. This is a Department of Justice interview. I think that's important. That's really important, TJ, because everybody thinks that this consent decree comes out of racial animus from PPB. And as Aaron explained when he came on, the consent decree came out of, if I remember correctly, wasn't it the mentally ill? How they deal with the mentally ill? And then it has just morphed. All the shootings, they found out that too many people with mental health issues were being killed by the Portland Police Bureau. And some of it was uh, suicide by cop. And some of it, you know, well, we've all encountered the uh, person, (laughs) I'm assuming by this point, we've all encountered somebody with mental health issues that has been threatening or dangerous. And that's why the Department of Justice is here, that that has to stop. So this, and, and that's why, everything's been going on. And TJ, Um, though, don't you think that's so interesting? Because to me, especially now that things have devolved so quickly in regard to these open air insane asylums we have on all of our sidewalks and the way that we treat, I mean, my dad was homeless because he was so severely mentally ill. And I, so I have a unique um, experience with people who don't want to, are very severely mentally ill and don't want to be on their medicine and how non-functional they truly are. But yet, if you're living in a libertarian state like Oregon or, say, Washington, you cannot commit those people or get power of attorney or anything over them unless they're, they have a, they have to have, like, a gun to their head currently. I mean, even if you call... They have to, you have to be able to swear they will be dead within 24 hours that's exactly, if they're not. Yep. And you can't swear that. They have to say it. So you're relying on the crazy person. I don't know how else to say it. Again, respectfully, and this is in my family, so I'm saying it as a family member. You have to rely on the person who is literally not in their right mind to tell you, to report to you what the situation is. And then 
and then you evaluate whether or not to step in, which is absolutely insane and absurd. And what we really need is something like Florida has in the Marchman Act, where a police officer could just say, look, this person's dancing around out in the middle of traffic nude. They're clearly a danger to themselves or others. Take some pictures, write up a report, and bring it to a judge, and it's like a search warrant. And then you've got somewhere for these people to go to get triaged and get on some medication. And because, you know, if if on medication, theoretically, they saw themselves doing that, they've got a family member floating around out there somewhere who would say, oh, my goodness, you know, Gary has really fallen to this point. And this makes me sick to my stomach because if he were on his meds and could see himself now, he would be so horrified. And if you talk to the family members of these people, um, like Terry Anderson, who was on this show, who had a schizophrenic son who died of a fentanyl overdose under the Burnside Bridge. Um, she will tell you there are no resources for the severely mentally ill or their family members in the city of Portland. And short of, like TJ said, the, the severely mentally ill person saying that they will be dead. And think about how rare that is. I mean, a lot of these people can't even speak or form a sentence. And we've got them running around all over the place. And yet, the police are under a consent decree for failing to deal with them properly. And as you said, TJ, a lot of this was suicide by cops. So we are in this, I feel like we are in this untenable situation. We're in a vicious cycle. Yeah, we're not dealing with the root cause. Well, and the, well, root causes we refuse to address as a society. Well, not all societies. In like 30 years. Yes, that's generally, that's true. But here's why I'm doing this podcast. Yes. The narrative has to change. That's how we can all help. The narrative has to change. And tell us what you mean by that. We can't, that the police are just out there killing people willy-nilly. That, that, look at the data dashboard. That isn't true. The member use that Portland police officers can only use force objectively reasonable necessary based on the totality of the circumstances that's that's what they're required to do we don't have enough police officers I don't know why based on the amount of crap they take anybody would want to be a police officer I don't either I've been I have been advocating for good officers. We attract good officers when we're a community policing agency because community policing, they get to deal with the good people, not just with the underbelly. They have this balanced life, professional life, where they get to proactively deal with issues. That takes a lot of manpower. We only have 800 officers. We have 800 officers because of the activists who are very loud and very well organized, screaming at everything they do. And the rest of us aren't saying anything. And don't get me wrong. When a cop does something wrong, I'm going to be out there screaming about that. But that is not that. That is, you're not giving them a blank check. You're supporting the efforts that they're making at doing good work. You know, when I had, okay, so. You know what they're going to call you. You know what they're going to call you. You know the word for it, don't you? Come on, you know what it is. Bootlicker. Bootlicker. I know they're going to call me that, but the fact of the matter is. Everybody's scared. 
after I did the survey, after I got the survey back from all those neighborhoods, I looked at that and and the named people. I mean, not just the police. The PBOT got compliments. The PEMO program, P-E-M-O, that's a whole nother show. Oh, my gosh, that's an amazing city program. Um, and I'm looking at this stuff going, wait a minute. Everybody in this city hears nothing but complaints. I hear nothing but what the cops don't do. I never hear a compliment. And yet I've had good interactions. So I look at these compliments and I go, wait a minute. I spent that next week researching what department, who was their boss. They got emails from me. I, hey, I know things are tough right now. Here, here's what happened. I had this community summit, neighborhood summit. I asked for who was effective in doing a good job. Here are the quotes. And I think right now you need to know who's doing a good job and that it's appreciated. And sent out the ones came come from all these different neighborhoods, and, and including those nerd officers. I swear, Kirsten, I, it was like I was feeding starving children. My email just blew up. Peabot, parking enforcement, fire. I mean, whoever I sent one, oh, my gosh, this is so, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. I mean, they just are, they just hear nothing but complaints. I hear all the time how nobody in the city works. That's not true. We're all overwhelmed, overworked, and just in crisis mode. Everybody is. So I get a call from the Police Office of Public Engagement. Thank you so much, TJ. We really appreciate this. Now, remember, I'm also the one that's been complaining about some cops through the years. Right. And I know Steve Laval, and he, he, he and I've had words at different times about cases that came through the CRC. So I'm not saying it's perfect. But I get this call, and they would like to come to our neighborhood. We had the training person and the Office of Public Engagement from the Chief's Office come to our neighborhood association uh, in May and, and just ask the neighborhood association. They recognize that the relationship between the city and the citizenry, the Portland Police Bureau and the citizens they serve, has completely broken down. They recognize they're 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 not no longer trusted. They're recognized as being an ineffective agency. They need to repair that relationship. They need to start rebuilding that trust. How do we do it? Like, I don't have the answer. Here's another time when I'm about T.J. Brown's going, why are you asking me? I don't know. But because I happened to have organized that summit with the neighborhoods and I did that survey, I had a bunch of data that they didn't have, that they weren't privy to. And it was an amazing meeting. I mean, very honest. And I get invited to the new version of the Citizens Academy. It goes one day now, and I did uh, LARPing, live action role playing. 
I mean, they have this police facility that's like this big warehouse with fake buildings and streets and things, and you get thrown in these situations where you have to make split decisions. Um, There's gun train. They're, they're not live ammo, obviously, but, you know, target practice, get in a car and you somebody's not pulling over, they show you, they show you how they bump the rear quarter panel. And I mean, they show you everything as, as much as they can. And, um, the most, at the end of the day, they were asking for any kind of feedback. And I will tell you right now exactly what I told them. I raised my hand. Over 25 years ago, the first Citizens Review Board fought like hell to get a policy of de-escalation prioritized in the Portland Police Bureau. The city auditor, city hall, fought us for almost two years. We were completely unsuccessful. We could not get de-escalation in the Portland Police Bureau. I sat through an entire day of de-escalation. That's the first thing they mentioned. That's the first thing they tried. I, um, I, in one of the scenarios, I had to approach a car and I approached the car too fast. And at the debrief, you always got a debriefing after the, uh, the scenario was over. TJ, you know, when you, when you come too fast at somebody, that is not, that does not deescalate. That can escalate a situation. I'm like, what? How fast I walk? That is how detailed-oriented they are in training de-escalation, de-escalation, de-escalation. I am so impressed. I Didn't that make you feel progress. good, TJ, because you started... I see progress. Yes, and you started this review commission board. You started this because you were seeing things like a lack of training and you wanted some say in making that better. And now you're, aren't you, don't you feel like you're seeing a lot of what you started come to fruition or what you were hoping for? I saw what I thought was never possible. Right. Based on the opposition. I saw what I thought was never possible fully actualized. The, the use of force standard, I told what that I read to you, it has to be a pro- proportional response to threat and de-escalation is the very first thing on their list of things to do. Verbal warning. Nobody talks about this. This is so important. Reactive de-escalation. I, I, yeah, I am so impressed and I am not easily impressed (laughs) when it comes to policing. This bureau is dedicated to de-escalation and we're not going to get more officers. We're not going to get the kind of officers we all want if we aren't 
actively supporting the kind of officers we want. When at the end of that neighborhood meeting with the somebody from the chief's office and the training office, um, somebody raised their hand and said, okay, well, how can we help? What can we do? What can we do to help restore the trust? What can we do to build this relationship? And this person from the Office of and Public Engagement said, we don't know. That's why we're reaching out. We don't know. They did say it, but here's the problem. How do you repair trust with the customer when you're failing to provide the service they all want? Say more. That's the, Say more about that's that. That's the problem to me. Well, they don't have enough. They have 800 police. When you have Joe Blow, good citizen, calling because somebody's trying to break in their house and they get no response, how can they be supportive of you? How can they trust you? I see them caught in this vicious cycle. They recognize they've got to repair the relationship, but I don't see, honestly, how that's going to happen if they can't improve the services they provide. And how do they do that with 800 officers in a city this size? So here's, when they got done saying that, I looked at all my neighbors, we had about 50, and I said, I have an answer for you. And they both looked at me like, what? I said, I, never see an officer in a car. I never pass an officer without waving at them now. I know, bootlicker, don't care. I never, I always smile and wave at them. If I happen to be walking someplace and there's a, there's a live police officer there, I always stop and say, hey, I just wanted to say thank you so much for hanging in there. I know times are tough right now. I know you don't have enough people, but I really appreciate what you're doing. My husband and I were on a bike ride during the hell of that summer of riots and everything. And uh, we were up about 70th and, and Woodward and there was a police car pulled off the side of the road and the window was down on the driver's side. My husband shoots by on his bicycle and I'm behind him. And I see the officer sitting there. He's not on the phone or anything. And I just turn around and I go back. And I get alongside of him. I put my hand on the window because I'm still on my bike. And he looks up startled and looks up very wary look in his face. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm sorry to bother you. I just really wanted to stop and tell you how much I appreciate what you're doing. And I, I know times are tough right now. And I know that you, you know, you don't have enough officers and, and things are really overwhelming and I just feel for you. And I just wanted to let you know that I appreciate what you're doing. I am not exaggerating. He got teary eyed. And I thought, oh my God, these people are traumatized. I, I know that sounds Pollyanna. I know that sounds silly. But which of us don't like to hear thank you when we've done our job? Which of us don't like affirmation? I mean, the biggest problem with the police bureau is they're human and all humans make mistakes. 
And maybe we just need to focus that they're humans. All humans like affirmation too. They're in an untenable spot. When you get overworked and overwhelmed, I think mistakes are going to happen. Yeah. We have to help get them out of this situation. They've got, we have to, and what we can all do is change the narrative. I don't, I'm not saying accept bad behavior. That is never going to happen. I'm saying recognize what the situation is. Do everything you can to change it because it's going to benefit all of us. We all like to hear thank you. They, 800 please. I also told them, please stop saying it's complicated. I don't care who you talk to in City Hall or who you talk to in the Bureau, who it is. Okay, well, why why can't you do this? Well, it's complicated. Stop saying that. People are sick of that. It's the truth, but people are sick of that. It's viewed as an, an excuse. Well, yeah, everything's complicated. It's, I'm so sick of that. And I'm also so sick of the finger pointing. Stop finger pointing. Stop saying it's complicated and just come up with a reasonable answer. Well, unfortunately, they have to have more police. Unfortunately, that's a, happening all across the country. And honestly, just the fact that you're willing to sign up and be, be a police officer makes me doubt your mental health. <laughs> in this in this city? In this yeah. day and age. In, in this city, a billion percent. <laughs> I had an officer at the um, police academy a couple of weeks ago come up and say hello to me. And this particular officer uh, used to be a school teacher in Detroit and came to Portland, oh my gosh, 15 years ago maybe, because he'd heard about community policing and he wanted to, to do community policing. And he was, and so I was kind of paying attention to him. I did his oral board. So I was kind of paying attention to him because he was pretty impressive to me. Uh, and uh, I hear in the news where he's in Old Town and dealing with somebody in a mental health crisis. And this has got to be like 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And he ends up getting shot. Oh, no, not Chrissy's shot. Oh, no. He got shot in the leg. And when he came back on duty, he asked, could he please work with the people with mental health issues? And when I saw him, I immediately went up to him because I hadn't seen him since all that and said, you're still a police officer. Thank you so much. I mean, we have some really amazing people, we, and and I'm not sure how they can do it. Kirsten, I'm not sure how Matt Jacobson keeps going. I'm not sure how Sean Sally keeps the the positive attitude and the and the great interactions with citizens. How does he do that? Uh, Leo Harris in training is amazing. Um, when you judge any group of people without having any personal knowledge of them, 
think that's called prejudice. And then when you get to meet and have interaction one-on-one, and remember this goes both ways, because the police need to have interaction with good people too, then that changes your opinion. If they thought they had some support, if they thought they were appreciated, maybe we could attract more good people like we want. And in the meantime, keep working on the people we don't want to get rid of the people we don't want. We've got to change the narrative. We're going to have got to get a lot louder and we need to talk about it. When that person tells you I didn't get a response, well, there was a shooting last night. They don't have enough officers. At our meeting, when they said they didn't have enough officers, so this was a Tuesday night about 7.30. I said, how many officers do you have on the street right now? What? Can you tell me right now how many officers? I wanted the 50 people in the room to hear how many officers were on the street. So he pull, opens up his laptop, and the first thing out of his mouth, well, I'll tell you right now, there's uh, 90 cues on 911. There were 90 people waiting on not for 911 responses from our officers. And we had, I think he said 36 in this entire city. Wow. Get on the dashboard, folks. Take a look at what's going on. And then get loud. We need more police. We need good police. When you say get loud, are you saying the things you said? Wave to the police, tell them thank you. What do you mean by get loud? Well, I'm disappointed in some of the things that happened. There's no longer citizens on the oral boards. It's now only the command staff hiring. That makes me nervous. There's been some steps backwards. Um, Where they allocate police officers' time and energy, like we finally are getting traffic. We need traffic. How many times, Kirsten, have you heard, why are there cars driving around without license plates? Why are there, get loud what you want. Be appreciative, but anytime there's limited resources, limited resources are allocated based on need, and we are not very good on need. We're not reporting because we don't think it does any good. I have an intersection on Sandy that people, if there's a crosswalk there, but if they're doing it, they're taking their lives in their own hands. And then I call the attention to the PIMO team that, you know, this intersection, this crosswalk's really dangerous. They pull up the statistics. Well, we haven't had any reports. And I knew that week alone, I just got a report today that somebody on a motorcycle got knocked over there at that, at that intersection. But they're not reporting it because we say, oh, it's not going to do any good. 
we, you know, my pet peeve right now is traffic. I didn't ride my bike once last summer because I don't feel safe on the Portland streets riding a bike. I don't feel safe on the Portland streets driving a car, crossing the street. I'm not going to get on a bike. How many times in one day do you see somebody run a red light or a stop sign? How many times a day? I mean, that impacts every one of our lives. And I want a traffic patrol. And then what do you do if that's what you want? You said get loud and say what you want. And then and then what do you, you do? You keep hammering away. Who do you talk to? Who do you email. say it to? I send emails to the chief's office. I tell every cop. I tell if I'm talking to Matt. I, I don't care if the bureau is in his. Hey, I want traffic. I tell everybody and anybody who will listen, and I don't care if they're not listening, they're going to hear it anyway. I want traffic. Listen, this is the, people don't realize this. This is this criminology junk that I got into. Um, fear, you know, on the, the, the police say their motto is um, to prevent the fear of crime. And the reason they say that is because disorder is the number one factor for people to experience fear. It isn't crime, like people think. Oh, this, is, it's, this isn't a safe city to live in because the crime's so high. That isn't what it is. It's disorder. Because disorder makes us fearful. So all the graffiti, all the trash, all the running the stop signs, all that stuff, that's all making us feel unsafe. And if we feel unsafe, we're not going downtown, we're not getting on the max line, we're not, and the city isn't going to come back. We can't live in fear. And disorder drives fear. We want our city back. I want Portland back so bad. And it's not going to happen. I understand the shootings. I understand all this stuff that, that the police are just so focused on. I get it. But that's not what it is for the vast majority of us. And the vast majority of our fears are being ignored. I mean, how do you deal with graffiti when you got shootings? Listen, I challenge yeah. everybody. When you're going downtown, if you go over the Morrison, go over the Morrison Bridge to get downtown one time from the east, and look at what you see: abandoned buildings, homeless camps, graffiti everywhere, boarded-up windows. And then, when you stop at Broadway, say you're going to uh, the Snitzer for something. When you stop at Broadway at that red light. Check how you feel. Next time you go downtown, go over the Hawthorne Bridge. Pimo has addressed the park there across from the city hall and everything. You go over the Hawthorne Bridge and that signal at before you get to city hall, that whole park is lit up. There's balls of light that look like globes. There's lighting everywhere. It's welcoming. It looks safe. It looks festive. It looks fun. And then when you get to Broadway, 
say to yourself, how am I feeling right now? Well, you, you'll go where you feel safe. You'll go where you feel invited. You go where you feel energized. All this stuff that we're seeing, the tents, the graffiti, the trash, all of this makes us all feel defeated and fearful. Support the police. Don't get off their backs about what you want. Nag 911, what the hell is doing? Why are we waiting online so long? I'm not saying stop making your demands because those demands are going to get our city back. But pay attention to why this is happening. Those are human beings stuck in those horrible positions. And keep encouraging them to work. Did you go to sleep? No, I'm... <laughs> I'm inspired by your vigor. So I'm just... I'm, I'm letting you express that because you do it so well with such passion we're all human beings we're all in this big shit show together (laughs) and we can't turn and look at other people like the police and say get us out of this we can't turn to the city and say get us out of this yeah they have things they must do but we must do also And just like we don't think they're doing everything they should be doing, frankly, I don't think the citizenry is doing everything they should be doing. It's a partnership. We're all in this together. We're stuck. The activists are well-organized and are loud. All the rest of us need to raise our voices. And what do you say to people who say, I'm scared to do that because I'm, I work for this company that doesn't want me talking about any of these kinds of things, or I'm scared because a lot of these same activists run very influential nonprofits that go hand in hand with various people in leadership in city and county, and so I don't want to get crossways with them. What a bunch of case of horrible possibilities that you haven't felt. I just, I'm just one person. I'm just an old lady. I'm not the brightest bulb in the sign. And you're still alive. They have not dismantled you yet. No. And, And they papered, if any, everybody who hasn't listened to TJ's first episode should listen to it because you'll understand TJ has been terrorized. Like, it's not like they left her alone. I mean, they took pictures of her, put them on flyers, and put them up all over her own neighborhood. Um, so yeah, it's funny because it was funny to me when one of them actually Googled me or something. One who had been calling me names and, and following me around whenever they saw me and just hassling me constantly. And then one time came up to me and said, wow, TJ, I Googled you. You've done a lot of stuff in police accountability. Holy cow. And like there are people that are, that I know that like when I said something about you, oh my gosh, she's done a lot of good. So, you know, too many of us live in black and white when the rest of the world is gray. 
I don't, I, you know, we just all have to remember that we're human beings. We all have to try to do the best we can do, given the circumstances. Um, we all need to be kinder to each other and nicer to each other. Um, I've gotten into the habit whenever I end a phone call with anybody in a service, like I'm the pharmacy or the utility, whoever I call, and it's our, it's a customer service person. And I, and I'm polite because they're doing their job. I recognize whatever complaint I'm doing, they have no control over. And I just feel like this person sits there eight hours a day and has people screaming at them. So I'm polite. I'm respectful. I'm assertive. I tell them what the issue is I need to get resolved. But when I'm all done and over with, I say, thank you so much. You were so helpful. And gosh, I hope every call from this point on, I hope everybody's nice to you. What? Well, that's so nice. Thank you so much. It's not rocket science, folks. It's just trying to be a good person and trying to put good things out in the world and trying to recognize that everybody's trying to do a good job with the limited resources they have. I mean, what I would say is, for me, what really brought it home, and it might this might not work for everybody, but when Renee Gonzalez was running for city council and he still didn't know if he was going to win the primary. He had no idea what his chances were. I mean, he I think at the time he probably even thought, I don't have a snowball's chance in hell, but somebody's got to do it. And I really admired that. And at that time, it was pretty, my podcast was pretty new, and I was still trying to not use my identity because I I have young kids and I run a law firm with my husband and I was just like I just didn't want to I knew there'd be a ton of backlash which there was and I just didn't want to get them mixed up in all this and then of course um you know Renee comes in and it's not like his family's not mixed up in all of this and he has no idea whether he's going to win or not in fact we're coming off relatively soon off 2020 at the time that he's running in the primary and the stuff he's saying would never have been allowed in 2020 in relatively recent memory he would have been crushed in two seconds possibly had the crap beat out of him even i mean possibly yeah uh certainly tried to you know burn they certainly probably likely in my opinion tried to burn down his house and do all sorts of other stuff and and harass his family and harass his wife harass his kids etc so um and he, he's, he's suffered from a fair amount of that, frankly. Um, not to the degree that you would imagine would occur in 2020, but he's had his, taken his licks. And um, he just sat across from me, and he looked at me, and he said, so I'm, what am I supposed to call you? And I felt so ashamed, TJ. I felt sick to my stomach. I thought I was going to throw up. And I said, just call me Kristen. I'm just going to say my name. And because it was, it was shameful. What I was doing was shameful, and I was... Um, sitting across from a guy who was putting everything on the line, who was willing to give up his law license that he worked really hard to get to run for this stupid city office that is thankless, doesn't pay really at all, and uh, not for, like, mayor or anything, just for, like, a a commissioner position. And um, he was willing to, to do it. And I thought, well, 
I'm not doing anything. I'm just talking into a microphone. I'm trying to hide my identity. This is ridiculous. Um, if, if this, if I really want things to change, I need to do what this guy is doing. And then of course, by the time I talked to you, TJ, I was who I am. And, um, it, it's not like nobody knew anyway, cause they doxed me in three seconds. It was so stupid to even try to keep it up. But the point is, um, by the time I talked to you, I was hearing that message from you, which is good people have to get louder. And now when I walk out and about people who have heard your episode will say, you do rational in Portland. Good people have to get louder. It's just like TJ said. It's exactly right. And they'll start talking about things you've inspired them to do. I went to county and I testified. I sent an email. I never would have sent an email before, but I sent an email to council and to Mayor Wheeler. And these sound like stupid little things, but in, say, 2020, when everybody was zipped tight and terrified of being canceled and terrified of being told that they wanted to kill grandmas if they wanted their schools to be back in session or kill teachers or whatever. If you said a bad thing about a teacher, you get squashed like a bug on social media. I think, um, and not that teachers are bad, but if you, if you made a comment like, boy, I sure wish they'd return to the classroom, um, just something that now seems pretty anodyne. I, I just think, Look, if you're still fearful, I don't know what to tell you, but I think Portland might not be the place for you because unless you're content, because if you're you're not content and you live here and you're terrified of, as TJ said, getting louder, if you're terrified of speaking up, if you're terrified of, of. after a neighbor says, wow, you know, I'd, I, I, I mean, the police are fine, but if our police would just stop shooting black people, if, if, you, if you're too scared to stop them mid-sentence and say, you know, you should really look on this dashboard database that we keep, or go, go to the Washington Post. They've kept a database since, I think, 2020 of uh, police shootings. Just get on there. Find out how many black people the Portland police have killed. Just find it out and and then share that with your neighbor. If you're too scared to do that and you don't like what's going on in this city, then this not might not be the place for you because you're not going to feel better and you're not going to do anything to fix it. And in fact, things are going to continue getting worse because the reason things got so bad so quickly is because we didn't have enough people standing up. And the reason that we, p- things are still bad is because we don't have enough people standing up and calling BS on a lot of this stuff and, and demand, like you said, TJ, demanding things be different. And, and you know what, once you start doing it, you will notice things around you. You will notice things like Mayor Wheeler at a, at a city council meeting, asking somebody from the water board, why not voting for her rate increases white supremacy is she accused him of? You, you will you will hear him asking questions like that. Why? Because more people are starting to say this is ridiculous. Things around here have to change. Like TJ said, beginning with narratives and beginning with the way we talk to each other and with civility and with um, these uh, ideologically opposed corners that we're in. I mean, at some point we have to be able to speak to each other. And if you're unwilling to do that, and if you're just engaging in name calling and racial epithets, then yeah, we're never going to fix it. Then we might as well just unplug and move to Florida or Texas with everybody else. You need to listen to what's being said because a lot of times what the activists are saying doesn't even make 
sense. There is no logic to it whatsoever. But a word of caution for all of you that I'm hoping have been inspired to complain, to speak up. Please keep your expectations low, but think about this. Floods happen because of every single raindrop. You have to think of yourself. What I hear from people, I have reported, but I didn't get an answer. I did report, but it didn't change anything. You're, you are not, when you start speaking up, you are not a lone voice in the woods. You're not the lone person in the wilderness. When you speak up, you're part of a flood. And you have to wait for the stormwaters to gather and breach the dam. You're, it's never a waste of time. It's never a waste of effort to report and to speak up. Tap down the expectations that you're personally going to get a response. I don't get responses 80% of the time. 80% of the time. And I keep going until eventually I do. So you just have to look at it like you're, you're, a, you're a very necessary critical raindrop. And we need you. TJ, what about people who say things like, well, everything's still a mess. I mean, you just said we don't have any police. It's a nightmare. They have no, there's a crisis of confidence. They have no support. Homicides are going up. You know, I don't know. I think they might actually be going down, but only by a couple bodies, uh, not by a lot. Um, so what do you say to people who say, well, TJ, what is the point of all this? I mean... Things aren't well. The one thing is, I honestly, the first thing I say is, well, then you haven't been paying attention. I mean, it isn't where we want it to be, but there has been progress and there has been improvement. There has been. I see it. What when I'm you, going down the street, what do you see? I see, I see fewer camps. I see graffiti being removed. I see litter being picked up. I mean, there's still a lot of litter. But chronic areas that I've witnessed all over the city in different neighborhoods aren't there anymore. There's still a whole bunch of them, but I have seen progress. I mean, we're in a big hole. And maybe we've only come up 25%, 15%, but you have to stop and recognize the progress we have we have a traffic division oh my gosh my husband was riding his bike to work downtown to get downtown there was a motorcycle cop who had somebody pulled over on the burnside bridge riding a ticket he came home for dinner that night you better believe what i saw <laughs> he was so excited that sounds silly that's progress it's moving too slow. There's not enough of us pushing for it. But it is happening. It isn't, it isn't as bad as it was. All you got to do is think about two summers ago. Come on, folks. It is not as bad as it was. It is getting better. It isn't getting better fast enough. And that's partly our fault. Say more about that. Well, 
they're going from crisis to crisis to crisis. And and why is that? Because those crises are making the most noise. We're not making we're not making enough noise about the traffic. We're not making enough noise. We're not telling the city where we want the resources. That's basically what it comes down to. I want more nerd officers. And they'll say, whoa, but we've got this going on. I mean, you know, shopkeepers want shoplifting taken care of. Well, when you go, well, shoplifting isn't as important as shooting. Okay, you know, we're losing businesses. That's the death of our city if businesses can't stay open. They're like in, what's that saying? You forget the objective is draining the swamp when you're knee deep in alligators. Is that what it is? I don't know. I haven't heard it. That sounds good, though. Yeah. When you're knee deep in alligators, you forget your objective is clearing the swamp. Clearing the swamp. And they're just, the city is just, just totally focused on the alligators. And the rest of us need some attention too. And apparently we're not going to get it if we don't start raising our voice. Well, thank you for coming on and thank you so much for your inspiring words and for all the work that you've done (laughs) in our city and for sticking around. I can't imagine leaving Portland. I never thought it would even occur to me, and it did for a moment. But, you know, if you don't do anything because you're afraid, you've already lost the fight, and you never even threw a punch or had one thrown at you. You're just giving up because you're afraid. Um, Don't let them win. They're so... so Fewer of them than us. Don't let them win. Um, I encourage other people to check into the police academy. They've just started it. They have very limited space. It takes a lot of coordination. A lot of police officers are there tying up time. Um, they want to do it. It's, it's going to build trust. It's going to build understanding. Uh, but they're looking for people who are like the safety chairs of their neighborhood association. They're right now they're focusing on um, people who are involved. So that's another reason for all the rest of you to get involved, but don't hesitate. I mean, it never hurts to ask. I'm just letting you know, they don't have a lot of capacity yet. They just started it again. And uh, they're really trying to figure out how to repair this relationship. They really are sincerely, authentically trying to reach out and get a dialogue going with us. Well, I think you gave us a lot of great places to start. And I really appreciate your wisdom and your advice. I really appreciate you letting me blabber on for all this time. No, people, (laughs) people love it. People love you. It's always one of the favorites, so I'm glad you came back. Come back anytime. Oh, you'll regret saying that, but uh, (laughs) thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for uh, doing this and uh, for your patience, most of all. 
Well, I know I can get going on something. This is really, truly a passion of mine. I know. When, uh, I know, and I appreciate when it. I was working when people would say to me, you know, you go into a social setting and somebody say, oh, what do you do for a living? I never wanted to say what my job was. It wasn't who I was. It wasn't my life's work. It wasn't what was important to me. Um, I'm telling you, that night in January 1992, that that gave me my direction for my life. Yeah, isn't it amazing how things happen? You just don't, when you least expect it, probably. Yeah. Everybody just has to figure out something and then go go do it. Well, thank you. Thank you again. You'll, you'll, you're going to inspire people. I know, even if it just means sending an email and I think that's a big deal. So thank, thank you again. Sending an email, Kirsten is never a just. That's right. Did you hear that everybody? That's exactly right. It's a big thing. Remember, that's another drop of rain. We got to get that flood going. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody. Stay on it. Yep. Keep up the good fight, everybody. Thanks again, TJ. Talk to you next time.